0: Everyone and welcome to our eighth and final episode of the year of You She and the Loop. Yes, it, it really is insane that we've reached the season finale, and we are so fortunate to be rounding off our first year with Cecile Richards. She's most well known for leading Planned Parenthood for 12 years until she stepped down in 2018. And while she's been involved in various political organizations, her current main focus is a nonprofit supermajority, which she founded that works to empower more women in politics. Quite a political force, and I think that experience really comes through in this wide-ranging interview, Nadia. I really enjoyed hearing what she had to say about women in politics, from our Vice President Kamala Harris to the GOP leadership of Liz Cheney and Elise Stefanik, to the impact of voter suppression bills on women voting. Her perspective is so valuable because she's been doing this for so long, and gave a lot of insights I hadn't previously considered. As a student, I don't think of not being able to stand in line for hours to vote because I have to go pick up my kids. Definitely not. Her expertise and political acumen are very evident, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did conducting it. Lucille Richards, thank you so much for being here. Sure, Nadia. It's great to be with you. So we're a civics podcast, so I wanted to start out with a more broad question relating to that. From being the head of Planned Parenthood to founding supermajority, how would you say that you would view the rights and obligations of citizens um, and how that has informed your own career path and your own choices?
1: Well, I suppose I think of it more in terms of rights and obligations, because of course you can't, you know, as we anyone who's an organizer knows, you know, people vote with their feet. And so you can't force anyone to... Uh, participate in a process, particularly if they don't feel like they're um, either seen or heard. So to me, all of my life has really been spent as an organizer. And that is in particularly, I think in in this moment, when there, there are folks who don't vote because they think it doesn't matter, or there are folks who don't vote because it's hard. And because in many places, the government makes it hard. I think the most important thing we can do is link what happens in government to what happens in people's daily lives. And, you know, unfortunately, I feel like we've been through a period in the United States where many people who are in office actually have very little respect for government and the role that, you know, the positive role that it can play. Obviously it's the institution that probably affects our lives more than any other, but it, it can, it can feel difficult to, I think, to make that connection for folks. And, I hope that's what, I mean, it sounds like that's what y'all are doing. I think it's just really important so that people actually see, okay, I voted in this particular way or for this particular person and these things happened as a result.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also on this podcast, we kind of like to talk about um, how the government works in relation to other actors. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about how um, political action groups, both nonprofits and super PACs alike more, what do they generally achieve in our political system How do they do that? Um, And if you want to get something done, I guess, like, where do you start? What people do you reach out to? Right. Well,
1: you know, it's it's funny. I spent a little bit of time working in Congress. I actually had the real honor of working for uh, Speaker Pelosi at at the time she was just coming up in her leadership. And so I had the chance. I mean, just a real um, rare kind of look into how things happen, particularly like in Congress and in Washington. And of course, one of the things I think people forget is that everyone who's serving in Washington really comes from somewhere else. And the most effective way to influence those people is not to have a lot of folks in Washington DC who go and talk to them, but actually to have people back in their home district who come to town hall meetings, send letters, uh, write um, write emails, make phone calls, and sometimes themselves travel to Washington. And I really learned that when I was at Planned Parenthood, where yes, we were a healthcare provider in all fifty states. That was a really part important part of our job. But our job also was to empower our patients, um, our supporters to advocate for policies that helped people's access to uh, healthcare and reproductive healthcare in in particular. And so to me, I feel like I've gotten to see um, the impact that citizens can make and that organizations can make and grassroots people can make when they speak up and speak out on issues that they care about. And I think that's true when the people you support are in power and the people that you don't support are in power. I saw it happen under President Obama. I saw it happen under President Trump. Uh, I think we're gonna see it happen under President Biden as well. So I, I, I think we can demystify in some ways um, politics by, by really empowering the people who are closest to the problems we're trying to solve to be the voice, um, to be a big voice in in how, those, how decisions are made to, to address them.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, would you say that you stepped down from Planned Parenthood in 2018 um, more so that you could you thought that you could make an impact from another angle, such as opposition research, which is more what you do now, or was it for another reason?
1: Well, I mean, I you know the job at Planned Parenthood is a big, awesome, uh, important job. I'd I'd been there for 12 years, and I I guess it's you know sometimes you just feel like okay i've i've kind of given what i can in this particular mm-hmm. role and also it's important to make space for other folks i you know i think sometimes we can stay too long in positions and i think i i guess for me it was uh, important to make sure that i didn't stay past when i had you know both the the I new ideas, whatever. I feel like I made my imprint. So, and I'm incredibly proud of Alexis McGill Johnson, who's the, you know, the, the president now. Uh, and I feel for her because I know how hard these jobs are. Um, I really did. I didn't leave to do opposition research. I and I'm, right now, I really am not doing that so much. I'm really more working on how do we translate. Um, and I'm particularly interested in women, but not exclusively. How do we translate? What is happening now in our government with really very far reaching proposals to address issues that particularly women, but not only women have dealt, you know, tried to try to have someone deal with or listen to all their lives, whether it's affordable child care um, or the particular burdens that women have in the workforce. And I feel like it's important that in this um, world of, of, I think, a kind of a chaotic news cycle that we break down what this administration is doing, who's supporting it, who's not supporting it, because I do think it's important, particularly after a year where there was a record, you know, voter participation, that folks understand that their vote actually resulted in action. And they can either agree with that action or not, but at least they should know that it didn't happen by chance. It happened because they got out and voted. And as we know, they voted at a time in which um, there were huge challenges to voting, including the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so I, and I just think that we have to do everything we can to sort of tr- make that translation.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned women. So I want kind of want to go into discussion on that, but first to kind of ground that discussion, I want to ask you, what is your definition of feminism?
1: Um, I think it's really a definition. Uh, well, it's, it's, I guess it's, it, I think the literal definition is just that feeling uh, that there is gender equity. Um, that was, you know, in the in the day, I guess, between women and men. I think now the, the idea to me of feminism is more that no one should be held back by their gender or their gender identity. And that, um, you know, it's interesting though. I think that labels, um, and I learned this a lot at Planned Parenthood, they really, they don't always, um, they don't necessarily relate to people. And also I think, you know, and I think a lot of the generational change, I think that there's a lot of new generation folks who are just like, they don't want to be labeled in any way. So I think it's hard to say, you know, everyone probably has their own definition, but but to me, what I really believe in is that your, your, your gender, um, your sexual orientation, your, you know, how you are it should not hold you back in, living your best life. And I hope that's what I've tried to work on for my, for, you know, at least for what I've done in my career.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you founded Supermajority, which is a political action group dedicated to bringing women into more areas of politics. Um, So what do you believe holds women back uh, within our current political structure and how does Supermajority actively combat that?
1: um well so let me just um, go back one step which is we actually when we created supermajority it really was um it was six women <laughs> and they came from they were we were all organizers in different ways so um uh, my friend Ijen Poo, who runs the National Domestic Workers they've organized to um, advocate for the rights and and um well-being of uh, folks who take care of people in their homes uh Alicia Garza who was one of the you know co-founders of the global Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Catherine Granger, who's worked on um, worked on the marriage equality uh, case in New York State, um, Jess Morales-Riquetta, who's done a ton of work at the border, and Deirdre Schiefling, who comes out of the labor movement. So we all kind of came into it just with a belief that if we could get more women empowered and have, have the skills they needed to be organizers for themselves and the issues they believed in, that we could change kind of the future and the, the direction of the country. And of course we were, this seems like, you know, ancient history now, but you know, three years ago when we really got this started, every woman in America was trying to figure out that we knew was trying to figure out what she could do to change the situation. And the situation could be anything from what was happening in our local community, what was happening in Congress, what was happening at the Supreme court. So we created supermajority with that very simple idea that if you provided access to training, to community really, and support, because I think there was a lot of loneliness for women who felt like the world was going in a, in a bad direction and they wanted to you know, be effective in, in making change. And then of course, leading up to the last election, ensuring that women had the tools and access to voting that was within an election that we knew would be so incredibly important. So I guess I like to think of supermajority as like, it's kind of like a one-stop shop. You know, if you want to get more active um, and we have a set of majority rules, which are the things we believe, the, how the world, if, if we had true equity, how the world would look. So it's not just, you know, being involved in politics for the sake of politics, but really being involved in a way I think that I hope advances a whole host of issues that, that women care about.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think I've generally heard one of the reasons why women are also reluctant to get into politics is this new, I guess, digital footprint that comes up online and women I've heard tend to be more like harassed online because of it. Has supermajority thought about this at all? Do you think how much of an issue do you think that this is?
1: Well, I think, yes, I think digital security is incredibly important and um, a permission-based structure and organization, which is also somewhat of a new idea, right? I feel like where women have been asking for permission about, you know, for people not to do things without permission for a long time. And so, actually, when we when we set up our portal and set up actually the whole way we communicated during the election, it was all permission-based. And so, and that actually was kind of one of the exciting things. And I certainly can't take credit for it myself, but the team that really. That, that has built our digital um, platform has done it in an intentionally permission-based way. And I hope we'll learn something from that because it's it. also the idea of supermajority is it's not like we can do everything, right? But we also, I think we can experiment and find ways to engage people, uh, give them give them the chance and also to get feedback to say what they need. Um, and that some of that may be useful for other organizations as well. And I mean, those kinds of part and partnering with, both long-term existing groups and new ones that pop up all the time is really important.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Supermajority's mission is to build, in quote, intergenerational multiracial movement for women's equity, end quote. So what is the importance of emphasizing the women's movement as intersectional?
1: Well, I think it's it's absolutely essential. And look, there's a long history of the women's, you know, quote unquote women's movement, I guess in ear quotes, because I I don't think that there really in the United States, there has never been a women's movement that represented all women. And yeah. it, you know, I think we can go back to the suffrage movement, um, a really, really, you know, <laughs> very ugly chapters of um not centering all women. And look, it's it's not like there was an easy blueprint. Um, and it's one of the things that I mean, what was the most exciting about setting up supermajority with Alicia and iGen and Deirdre and everybody is, you know, struggling with how do you do this now in a in a way where your staff, your mem- the members, um, folks who are looking to get involved can bring their their whole selves, and so a lot of the um, in fact a lot of the convenings pre COVID, you know, when we could all get together. Uh, were really fantastic because, in many, you know, we I remember specifically at a time that Alicia and I were doing a women's meeting in um, Detroit with a couple of hundred women and very, very multiracial, very multigenerational, a lot of women who'd never met each other before, but just the power in that room of realizing. Oh my gosh, if we all got together and kind of knew each other and we knew each other's issues and we knew the challenges that we were facing, we could be so much more powerful. That's not, that's an organizing idea. It's not something that happens overnight, but to me, it's about, you know, taking the time to build relationships. And as Ijen always says, which I just think is great. It's like, you know, if you're not adding people. You're really not organizing, right? And so part of this is how do you get outside of the communities that you live in, or have always um, worked in, and make new friends, and right. you know hear other perspectives.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so kind of thinking more broadly towards like politics, Kirsten Gillibrand's 2020 campaign predominantly, I guess, focused on quote unquote soft issues that more specifically applied to women. And mm-hmm. so how do you think that with within the movement at Majority, supermajority, um, how do you view that movement um, to make these issues more mainstream? And for her specifically, do you think that it was a leap forward that someone had a candidacy that kind of revolved around these issues? Or Do you think that maybe like voters don't care enough about these issues? Um,
1: look, I can't really say. And I think that the presidential election is such a hard Crucible to learn things in because there were so many people running, and it was, I mean, so many people, as you know, really weren't paying attention until towards the end. But I guess I, of course, don't think of issues that women care about as soft issues. I I feel like actually, you know, it's funny, this is so, um, it's it's like one of those things where you you remember a conversation that you had a few years ago and then it comes back to life and you go, of course, this is what it means. I remember right after the 20, um, 2018 elections when, as I'm sure your listeners know, that was when women just like ran for office like, Gangbusters, and we elected more women, more women of color, more people of color. Completely changed the House of Representatives. Uh, in fact, there in Chicago, Lauren Underwood, you know, defeated six male, um, you know, primary opponents and went on to beat her, you know, Republican um, in, in in the general. Uh, so it was just like this infusion of energy. And I remember meeting with, uh, I think, Ijen and I uh, were meeting with some of the new members um, and the, and women who'd been in Congress. In a basement to kind of like plot out the future, and one of the women who'd been in Congress a long time, she said, "You know, it's not that it's not that the men in Congress don't agree with us on the issues that we talk about, like access to affordable child care, you know, equal pay, um, building a healthcare system where your gender isn't you know an obstacle." She says, "But somehow, whenever we get to the to the funding part, it's all about roads and bridges." And so it's really yeah. hilarious because we're actually having this exact same debate now, right? Is that yeah. what is infrastructure? And so uh, I, um, it, it's I don't think of women's issues as soft issues. I feel like, you know, I really so strongly believe that really um, for women and for women of color and a lot of people of color, like the. Things were never built for us to participate, including mm-hmm. our economy, <laughs> uh, you know, our education system. And so many of the structural things that, that we've advocated for at supermajority are, um, are investments that just were never seen as a priority. And so that's why, like right now, the fact that the new administration is advocating for free pre-K for all three and four-year-olds, you know, quality, free, That that's that isn't radical, but it would be revolutionary. I mean, and the fact that we're talking about now investing in home care workers, investing in child care as a necessity for people to be able to participate in the workforce, these are things that it's it's sort of like we've it's not that those haven't always been issues. It's just that there was never a political prominent, you know, they were never politically prominent. So, I mean, back to Kirsten's campaign. She, I think, you know, has tried all of her life, but so have a lot of other people to try to put these issues in the forefront. And I do think there is just this sort of slight opening here of seeing that perhaps the issues that women have cared about, they're not soft issues. They are structural issues that have never received the kind of attention or investment that that they've needed. And this could be, this could be a big change, particularly, I think, for your generation of maybe that, you know. We begin to make some incremental progress.
0: So do you think part of the issue, I guess, or what I'm hearing you say, um, with getting people on board is more of like a perception problem? Like people just aren't under, like, I guess, seeing childcare, for example, as being like part of infrastructure or at the top of the list for anything?
1: I don't think it's that. I just think we have, I mean, look, we right now, uh, I think. I think when Nancy Pelosi went to Congress, I think something like 4% of Congress was female. Something just hmm. like today, uh, the, at least the Democratic caucus is about 40% female. And so that's obviously we're not near equity and certainly not Republican Party, not even close, but that's where the conversation begins to change right? That's where at the, you know, as as Lynn Manuel would say, you know, you're in the room where it happens. This is when actually the people who are making decisions and advocating, actually have direct experience of what it's like not to have maternity coverage or what it's like not to be able to get your, um, your uh, young child into an affordable uh, childcare situation or a good, a good school. So I don't think it's, I I think that is a big piece of it, but the other piece is we have to have not only the folks in the room, but we have to have the grassroots political movement to support what they're doing, because look, we have, we have you know more childcare policy you could you could sink a ship with it we yeah. just have not had the political will to make it happen and that's to me that's that is a big piece of what supermajority is about it's a big piece of what i think folks are doing now at the grassroots is saying we've just got to push 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 so that we don't we don't lose this moment and this opening
0: yeah and i think even before that like the first step of like trying to get women into politics for me i feel like it's about also about representation. Like Mm -hmm. I, so I'm like, my family's Pakistani. And so when I saw like Kamala Harris step up and like as a South Asian woman, like that was really impactful for me. It's actually what made me (laughs) change from being pre-med to being a poli-sci major now. Um, And so I think it's interesting because I feel like at the beginning there was so much momentum around her. Everyone was like, this is amazing. Like, I mean, she got elected after the inauguration. It was great. And I feel like now we don't, I mean, now we don't hear about her as much. Of course, the vice president has typically not usually been on the front pages, but I'm wondering if you see this maybe as an issue, the fact that she's kind of gone under the news radar. Um, do you think that it's problematic that she hasn't really been broadcasted as much? Um, I don't know. What What do you think on that?
1: Well, I I honestly, I feel like it's on all of us. And this is something that I've talked about with other women is that it, it is. Uh, I mean, she's got a big job. She's obviously got all kinds of responsibilities, but it's important for me that those of us outside of the government do our job in lifting her up and showing people what she's doing, um, giving those opportunities. I know it's, you know, this, this, as we're moving out of the pandemic, I think that I'm hoping that there are going to be more opportunities, but yes, she's brilliant. She is historic. As you say, she, um, she brings a whole new group of folks into politics women i think young people who are saying okay i could do that you know i that looks like fun that looks like something that's compelling and uh so i i do think it's a responsibility of all, all of ours kind of getting back to your first question nadia like what is the whole role what is civic education and civic engagement why is it important it's not something that comes from government down right it comes from the yeah. up and so I, I think there's endless opportunities to promote Senator Harris, well, Vice President, that's he, that's terrible. Vice President Harris in this role that she's in and ensure that people do see her because um, it's, yeah, it, it's, cause you're right. It's easy to get lost in the, in the sort of the back and forth. And one of the things that I'm really interested I'm doing with another group right now is, is looking at how women consume media, because I think it's, not like it used to be. And to me, that's a a real opportunity to just assuming folks are not going to be watching the evening news necessarily, or reading a newspaper, but women's magazines, obviously podcasts, other ways that where women can kind of do it on their own terms. Um, I think we can get better better at that, but that would be a great job for you all. You all should get Vice President Harris to be on your podcast next year. Oh,
0: I I wish
1: (laughs) (laughs) if you can make that happen, that would be great. (laughs) Okay, let's keep in touch on that. (laughs)
0: Um, So more recently, Representative Liz Cheney was voted out of her position as a third ranking Republican and was replaced by Representative Elise Stefanik. These women have been um, viewed among the most powerful women in the country. Stefanik even has a a PAC that focuses on electing Republican women to Congress but they also support pro-life policies, as you know, and other issues tr- um, traditionally abhorred by mainstream feminism. Um, and so as an advocate for both pro-choice policies and more women in government, how do you view these women in power? And I guess maybe their contradictions with your own beliefs.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's kind of gets back to when we started super majority in that. I I don't think just I mean, look, we we need to have more representation by everyone. It has to rep. We need a Congress. We need state legislatures, governors, et cetera, that look that look like the country. Um, And that means just so much. We need so much more diversity. I also strongly believe we need people who um, believe in human rights and believe in women's rights and LGBTQ rights and um, immigrant rights. So I'm not for just. You know, I'm not going to spend my time just trying to get more representation, and particularly of folks who I think are actually actively working to take away rights that um, that folks have. And so, I certainly disagree with um, really the vast majority of women that are, uh, and you know, in the Republican Party. Um, and I think it's important that we say what are the values that we believe in. And you know, when we when we started supermajority, we said it, we has, it has to be clear. Not that we're partisan, but that we believe, you know, look, our lives need to be safe, our work has to be valued, our bodies have to be respected, our families have to be uh, supported, and with that comes, you know, uh, certain decisions about policies and what government can can do to make people's lives better. But um, it has been, I mean, just on a personal note, it's been incredibly discouraging to see. Mm-hmm this kind of race to the bottom in the Republican party Uh, and just even the irony of, you know, exiting one woman and putting in another, but only because she would, you know, basically, you know, pledge fealty to, um, you know, former president Trump. That's, you know, that's when you're really trading to me, your, your ethics and your values for a political position. And it's hard to respect that.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, why do you think that abortion, I guess, has been really weaponized by the Republican mainstream in the past fifty years?
1: So it's interesting. I mean, it's a much it's a co- more complicated story than we can you know fully get into. But it really happened um, back um, kind of around the ninety four elections when hmm. the, the, you know this is when the what was called sort of quote unquote the Christian right or the in the Christian coalition. Figured out that if they could um, bring a you know sort of very far right um, Christian or evangelical voters who were non-voters into the process, they could determine not only elections but they could dis- determine political primaries. And it used to be back in the day there were Republicans who were believed in the right to make your own decision about your body, including the right to access to birth control, the right to access to abortion. But then it became um, and has been over the last, I'd say, you know, 15 years become a litmus test. And even Republicans in Congress who fully supported Planned Parenthood, you know, have Planned Parenthood health centers in their districts, know the vital role that the organization plays in providing health care, begin to vote to defund Planned Parenthood, not because they had changed their opinion about Planned Parenthood, but because they knew if they voted um, in support of Planned Parenthood, they were afraid of their political future. And if you are so afraid of your political future that you are willing to take votes against what you believe, I thought that you should be in office anyway. And that has really yeah. is what happened. And you know, it's um,
0: so it's I don't to what's going on right now, too. Exactly, with Trump and everything. So no,
1: it's it's, a, it's sort of it just you're. Then why? You know, I, I. In fact, I'll never forget. There was a Republican woman from Texas who was in Congress and very moderate, and you know, in the day. And when the when Mike Pence, former Vice President but then Congressman, uh, decided he wanted to try to defund Planned Parenthood, um, and he was going to take a vote, I went to her and I said, you know, we have three health centers in your your district. We, you know the care that we provide. And she Mm -hmm. said, I know, Cecile, but if I vote, um, if I don't vote to defund Planned Parenthood, they're going to come after me in my primary and beat me. And I kind of want to go back to her now these many years later and go, well, what good was that, right? Mm -hmm. What good? You took those votes and now you have a party that has basically abandoned women, abandoned women's rights. um, And was it worth it? Like what did you what what good have you done for your district or for um the things that you believe in? And I just it's it is discouraging to see. Um it's so, but you're right. This is that's kind of that's kind of where we're at in this country right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And recently we've also seen a large swath of voter suppression laws. Um yes. in part of you know, Texas, Florida, Georgia. Um, these laws actively target marginalized groups such as people of color, but do they affect women in any way? And if so, how?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was you know, when the whole fight over the voting rights, um, trying to protect the Voting Rights Act was taking place. There was a lot of research done about why it's important to have access to voting um, and, you know, that provides whether it's early voting, whether it's, you know, weekend voting, mail-in voting, absentee voting. And it was demonstrated, I, I can't remember if it was the Analyst Institute, I believe was the one who did the study, but uh, so don't quote me on that, I'm not not positive, but essentially all the voting restrictions are harder for women, for working women, for working moms, for women of color, because, and I mean, you can just see it. Anyone who's ever done voter turnout on election day, you know, a woman can be can come up to vote, and if the line's two hours and she's got to pick up her kids or she's working a second job or she's working and going to school, that's the difference between voting and not voting. Uh, and so it, of course, disenfranchises, um, you know, all people that have people of low incomes, people who don't have, you know, their bosses don't let them off for hours to go work, I mean, to, to go vote, and, of course, often live in communities where the voting lines are not coincidentally, extremely long and much, you know, a, a, a much tougher voting situation. So yes, the, all these restrictions are—they um, were going to be hardest on people with low incomes and people of color, but they are disproportionately hard on on women. Um, I mean, even the caucus system—I I can remember just—it's, you know, to go to to participate in a caucus, you know, you have to be willing to go and sit for hours um, in the evening time during the primaries and you know, moms leave, <laughs> they can't, you yeah. know, like you, it's not a system that was built for, um, a lot of women who have other people that they're taking care of.
0: Yeah. And do you believe that, I guess, um, the ele- election day, um, November 4th generally should be a national holiday?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've always believed this. It's completely nuts that it's not and I, I mean, it's just it's just heartbreaking. And let's just you know boil this down to what it is. This last November, we had the largest voter turnout, I think numerically in history. Certainly higher voter participation than we've seen in decades. And so, as opposed to going, wow, that really worked. <laughs> now let's figure out how we can even expand it. Instead, what's happening in state legislatures, like my home state of Texas like Georgia, we could go down the list. They're now trying to figure out, how do we make it harder? There's no evidence that there, were, that, that there was malfeasance, um, although of course that's, that's all they talk about. But I, I mean, they're just taking the exact wrong lesson. To me, I would be saying, okay, we have finally figured out some things that work then, maybe making it easier, letting people drop off their ballots, making sure that people don't have to wait in line, that they can vote on the weekends. But instead, there are states that are obviously trying to restrict voting and it's going to it's going to have an impact.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what women's issues are on the agenda in 2022 and can women help Democrats win?
1: I mean, I think in 2022, there there's a clear set of issues. I mean, we, we've we just talked about um, even these the proposals that President Biden and Vice President Harris have put forward in terms of. Uh, making childcare more affordable, investing in home home care workers, um, supporting uh, you know no cost uh, early childhood care for three and four year olds, um, making community college free for two years. These are these are sort of bedrock issues that would help women everywhere. And up to now, the Republicans have voted against completely against everything that, you know, and certainly against the recovery package, I think it's going to be really important to distill this down and to do the kind of voter education we need to, It at least so women can make an informed decision. Um, the amount of misinformation, I mean, it's kind of hilarious to see now Republican members of Congress claiming credit for the recovery, you know, the rescue plan, and you're like, but everyone voted against it, right? So I just think the the you can't overemphasize the importance of going out and helping folks you know, be educated. Um, we know now, of course, there's going to be an abortion case brought before the Supreme Court, um, which will be you know, heard before this election. I think that the right to reproductive care obviously is already has, you know, is so diminished uh, in so many states. And I think this is going to be a critical issue um, in the midterms. Uh, But there I just would encourage folks, no matter what issue you care about, um, where you live, do something right. I mean, this is going to be a really important election and a real opportunity, particularly for young people to be in on the ground floor of um, whether it's in a congressional race or a local state representative race or just working with an organization that represents your values.
0: Mm -hmm. And so last question, your mother was involved in politics How much of her, I guess, involvement made you really want to get involved as well? Um, And then we've kind of already touched on this, but like, how can we similarly inspire more girls to get involved?
1: Well, I think, uh, I mean, yes, my mom had a huge influence on me, but it's kind of interesting. Like she was not really involved in politics until much later until, you know, Mm -hmm. she'd raised four kids, which is why I guess my big thing. And actually it was for her too. It's just like, get started early. You know, don't wait until you feel like you've got the right degree or you've done all, you know, and this is why I just, I love um, actually one of the speakers in my class is uh, 30 years old. First, uh, you know, like youngest woman, I think to go to the state legislature in Florida, first Iranian American. I, I think it's important that we showcase um, young people um, including young women that can inspire um, those of you who are just beginning your career to not wait. You know, don't wait till you've done everything else. Um, get into politics now. Uh, and I think the exciting thing is, you know, whether it's Lauren Underwood or AOC or Ayanna Pressley or Veronica Escobar, there are so many. Exciting women in politics now that can I think inspire um, inspire anyone to say okay that looks like something worth doing and and that you actually uh, could have fun at the same time so I I, I hope that I hope that it just as you said with Vice President Harris is such an inspiration but there are inspiring women all over this country who've just kind of taken a leap. And, and, I, and they're talking about issues that, that we care about. So um, yeah, I would just, I, I just hope everyone can get involved. Even if you don't want to run for office, get involved in a campaign, you'll feel better about things.
0: It's so wonderful that we have the opportunity to pick the brains of these huge political icons, and especially women like Cecile Richards, who have made it to the place that they have. Yes, but what I also really appreciated was your emphasis on how everyone can get involved in politics, regardless of what kind of capacity. As a civics podcast, we always want to encourage that, and to hear how important it is from someone like Cecile is really reassuring that we can all have an impact. I low-key kind of want to be her, And I don't mean that in a partisan way, but in the amount that she's accomplished kind of way. (laughs) Someday. For now, thanks so much to Cecile for this interview. That wraps up our last episode of the year. For You Sheen, the Loop, I'm Emily DeVecro. And I'm Nadia Osman. Thank you so much for tuning in and making our first year of this podcast incredible. It means a lot to me and the whole team at You Shine the Loop. See you on the fall.